listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name's Ian Tullock. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. And Anthony, I gotta tell you, I'm so excited because I've been writing about these meaningless games over the last couple weeks, and I've had to try to pull meaning out of them somehow while grading players on a scale from one to five on the Leafs. And the players haven't really cared. The opponents haven't really cared. I got to be honest, I'm not sure if any of the fans have cared too much about these last few games because we don't even have Sandine in the lineup for these games. I mean, what are you, if you're a Leafs fan, what are you paying close attention for? There is real playoff hockey going on in the world right now. The Leafs are going to be playing the Habs in the first round. We have some actual stuff to talk about. And for once, I'm thrilled to be breaking down the Leafs with you today. So let's go for it. Is this the first time you're thrilled to be breaking down the Leafs with me? Yeah, what episode is this? 15, 16? First time in a long time. Yeah. How sick How sick have these playoffs been, though, to start? That game one, Tampa, Florida, I'm not sure if we'll get a better, ga- uh, better game in the entire playoffs just because it had everything. And, man, I, I the inner fan of me is coming out right now. Just the, the pure joy of watching hockey at the highest level. I think the fans in the building – helped energize the players too to the point where there was physicality there were high-end skill plays from a Stamkos and a Kucherov there were scrums after the whistle it had a bit of everything and it, it, it's why we watch this game that's why we're hockey fans so I just hope we get a, a little bit of that from Toronto uh, Montreal I'm not sure if we will because the lack of fans is going to impact things and there might not be that pure hatred that you feel when you have 10,000 plus fans roaring after a bad call or after a big hit but I'm still excited for the idea of games meeting something and the players clearly carrying an extra level because I think especially late in a COVID season when the playoffs were, the matchups are set, if you're a player and you're playing those games, how much effort are you going to be putting in realistically knowing that you don't want to get hurt for the playoffs? So last year, if, I, if I'm being honest, in my, in my heart, watching a lot of that playoff hockey, it, it didn't feel like playoff hockey. For any number of reasons, no fans, uh, just the overall caliber of hockey. I remember when Tuka Rask left, and it was a totally legit family-related reason uh, with his young daughter. But I remember when he left, he he had said that it didn't feel it didn't feel like playoff hockey. And in my heart, I remember, I remember watching it and and just going, honestly, I agree. It just just it's it was missing a number of components. And watching the first few playoff games to start this year, I'm so fired up to say playoff hockey is full ass back. A hundred percent. Just watching, going, this is this is real. And the thing that I think that we probably did not give enough thought to as a group is the players missing all that time off before playoffs started. And also just the overall confusion that was happening in the world back then. They were rusty. There was some shit hockey back then. You know, I can't think of a nicer way to, to put that. I mean, it was to be expected, too, considering the circumstances. A hundred percent. Not blaming anybody whatsoever. But now we're watching, and it's, you know, it wasn't an 82-game season, but they did play a fairly normal, work, you know, hockey schedule for enough time that this is... There's no break. These guys, they're they're in one now. You know, this is everyone's in form. Everyone's ready to go. Everyone is is fired up. So, you know, I'm pumped. It's funny. You've got me all energetic now. I almost want to break down Florida's second line and talk about some of these other series. <laughs> but no, this is a Leafs playoff podcast. Bennett man. Playoff Bennett. Playoff. How about playoff Marchment? How about playoff hit from behind Bennett with Florida up <laughs> late. Ryan McDonough's hit probably needed a second look. There there are some hits in these playoffs. I'm going to be interested to see what Josh Anderson does, what Wayne Simmons does. What, on the Leafs and the Habs rosters, who are players that you think are going to make a bigger impact because of that element that we're describing here? Because I know I'm a stats nerd. I know that I like to focus on my zone entries and my zone exits, but there's a reason that Wayne Simmons is in the lineup and nerds like myself are going, well, is this the right decision? And I think it's because there's going to be a moment or two where he gets into a fight with someone and it creates momentum in a time where in a COVID season, it's difficult to create momentum. I know if you look around the, the Canadian division right now, if you watch those playoff games, which haven't started, by the way, which is ridiculous, but alas, that's neither here nor there. 
I'm wondering which players do you think are going to be able to make that quote unquote impact with their intangibles, with their physicality, with some of these, uh, you know, borderline hits that are probably going to be allowed more often in the playoffs. There are areas on the ice that I think are going to have some bigger battles. Yeah. So the first one, I mean, this guy is just tangibly good. And I think we've all kind of forgotten just how good he is a little bit just because he's missed this time here. But Zach Hyman, of course, I mean, he's he's been money in the playoffs for the past few few years they've been in and in that time the Leafs have had a number of stars that have kind of rotated in in that kind of they were good one playoff they were bad one playoff you can do it with Marner you can do it with Nylander you can do it yeah Marner was bad against Columbus straight up but he was not good against Columbus yeah you can do it with a lot of Leafs unfortunately at five on five they didn't score last year they shot two percent at five on five last year yeah and I'm looking you know this is why they brought Nick Foligno in right because they they do need a little bit more jam I'm very curious how Wayne Simmons kind of kind of goes about things and he's interesting too in the sense that Josh Anderson pretty much every game the Leafs have played Josh Anderson has been running around quite a bit that's what he gets paid for that's his role yeah yeah and he knows his role and and he's a nice player and he's the kind of guy where you know I would take him on my team for sure and there was a few games ago where, where Josh Anderson was running around and, and Simmons kind of went after him in the second and, and challenged him to a fight and Anderson declined. And I really felt the rest of the game that Anderson kind of, he toned it down a little bit. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I wish we could measure that somehow where we go, okay, before he was challenged by Wayne Simmons, how many uh, hits was he throwing? How, how yeah. much force was behind them, let's say? And then if you look at that after, there's got to be some kind of way to do it. I don't have access to that information, but th- this is where I'm wondering, does that have some kind of impact? And another guy I think about in that regard, Shea Weber and battles in front of the net is something that I'm going to be paying close attention to because we, a lot of agents have mentioned cross-checking is something that a lot of star players wish that we cracked down on more because it's a play that benefits the stronger, more physically imposing player and the player who is on the short end of the stick is the guy who's on the ground who just got cross-checked, the smaller, more skilled, faster player. Shea Weber's heat map throughout his career, it's always been blue right in front of the net. He doesn't allow high-danger chances because he's a good defenseman. He has a good stick. He understands the game and positions himself well. But he also gets away with a lot in some of those yep. tight a- areas in front. When you have a Zach Hyman going to the net, when you have a Wayne Simmons going to the net, when you have a William Nylander on the PP1, who's supposed to be the net front presence, how much is Shea Weber getting away with some extra stuff going to limit Toronto's ability to penetrate the slot and penetrate that middle ice? Because it's such an important area in the modern game. It's that, that scoring chance area that every coach cares about. And Shea Weber, for all his flaws and the fact that he probably shoots too much from too far away and he isn't, he isn't the skater he once was, even though he was never really that dominant of a skater, it's his ability to take away that important ice that I'm a bit worried about if I'm a Toronto forward right now. Yeah, and Jeff Petrie, 6'3". Ben Sherratt, I think, is 6'2", 6'3". Joel Edmondson is 6'4". So i got to be honest. If I'm seeing a lot of Sherratt and a lot of Edmondson, I'd, I'd rather see that than actual good defensemen. 100%. And I think the Leafs have some opportunities uh, to burn these guys in the neutral zone. All of them are very aggressive in the neutral zone. If they see an opportunity to step up, they're going to do it. If they think that they could, you know, pick off a puck or uh, step up on a forward, deliver a hit at center ice, yeah, yeah, all four definitely are. They shade generally to the the. They're not extremely. They're not you know. Uh, they're not dumb about it, but they're all open for you know one or two rushes a game that they cause because they're a little bit antsy, and. You know that's really all that's all you get in the playoffs so you have to cash in when you get them but all all of them are in that category but all that is also to say you know we know that teams get away with extra curricular activities we'll call them in the playoffs the penalty standard is heightened yeah and so you know the Leafs have to fight through that a little bit more and you know I know that we were just talking about it in our famous pre-recording chat which is probably longer than this podcast is actually going to be. It's probably going to be for this one. It was actually a good chat too. But um, to the to the point of, of playoffs and, and fighting through those things, uh, you know, one of the things I had mentioned to Ian right off the bat, just coming in all pumped about playoffs, playoff time, is 
I take no excuse this year for losing. Like they have to win. Like I, it, it's there. I, they're they're just they're a better team than Montreal. I just I can't handle it. Dom's odds, I think, had them at eighty-two percent to win the series, which is second highest to Colorado, who is at eighty-eight percent to beat St. Louis from the beginning. So they're basically better across the board. Even when you look at some of the closer metrics, the five-on-five five metrics that I like to bring up, this is probably a good point to start talking about uh, Ducharme and yeah. the differences between the yeah. Claude Julia Canadians and the Dominic Ducharme Canadians because they're two different teams. Under Julia at 5-on-5, five five, the Habs led the league in 5-on-5 five five goal differential. I want to say they were top two or three in, in XG and scoring chances. Under Ducharme, they're at 50% for expected goals, which is break-even, which is well under what they were under Julia. And they're underwater in terms of goal differential. They're one of the worst teams in the league. Minus nine. It's not good. It's not even, that's not playoff. That's not even a playoff team. I'm sorry. It's not. Now, a lot of that is without Gallagher, to be fair, and he's their best player at five on five. Philip Deneau is also excellent. And Thomas Tatar's underrated as a kind of zone entry wizard on one of the best lines in hockey, if not the best line in hockey. That line is so good when they play together. So I think Gallagher is better than, than Hyman. I want to be clear on that. Gallagher's had 30 goals multiple times. He's, he's legit. He's really good. But how much better is Brandon Gallagher than Zach Hyman? That's a fair question, and it's one that I'm sure Zach Hyman's agent is going to bring up this offseason because Gallagher's contract, what did he get? He got six by six and a half? Yeah, something along those lines. But I more so brought it up to say, okay, I get it. They lost Gallagher. He's really important. I've you know said it myself. If Gallagher's not in the series, the Leafs are probably going to walk over these guys. But you can't be that good if losing Brandon Gallagher just – you know, puts everything down the tube for your team. Like you can't like Brendan Gallagher isn't enough that your team should go off the rails if he's not there. It's not, but at the same time, expected goals is the stat I like to use. I know all the old school hockey types make fun of oh, I'm sure the XG was really good when Taylor Hall was on the <laughs> ice tonight and you know what it probably was, but <laughs> if I could just uh make a, a quick point here about the top lines in hockey in terms of how many goals you're expected to score based on your shot locations minus the number of goals you're expected to allow. And that you look at the differential, the best lines in hockey are north of 60%. That's your Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, and Zach Hyman. It's your McKinnon, Ranton, and Landeskog line. Marchand, Bergeron, Pasternak. Those are the north of 60. Only one line is north of 70% this year on moneypuck.com. And it's that Montreal line. It's Tatar, Deneau, Gallagher. And they do it while facing the toughest competition in the NHL. I know in years past that we've said that, well, Gallagher jams the puck into goalies' pads a bunch of times in a row. So I don't know if they're going to convert on these. But they actually have been converting on them the last couple seasons. It's part of the reason I bring up this line because I think that's what Montreal needs to dominate at 5-on-5. Five five. They need to neutralize Matthews and Marner and territorially dominate the puck so that Matthews and Marner are forced to play 200 feet from their, where they want to be generating offense. I think that's how you do it. But if I could get to Ducharme real quick, because I, I did want to mention this. If you look at some of the decisions he's been making lately in terms of lineup construction, I don't think he's optimizing their chances of winning. And we already talked about how if you look at a large sample at the team level, they were way better under Julian than they have been under Ducharme lately. This is going to sewer the Habs' chances of winning the series. They should have a much better chance against the Leafs, considering how well they were playing earlier in the year. Cole Caulfield's not going to be in the lineup, which I know is something you're going to touch on because you don't even think he's been that good at 5-on-5, five five, which I think is a fair he criticism. He hasn't been. <laughs> yeah. And Eric Stahl's been brutal at 5-on-5 five five for the Habs. That has not worked whatsoever, and he's still in the lineup. At New York Rangers' Eric Stahl is back in full force right now, and it's absolutely hilarious. Yes, Barry Kotkaniemi is not in the lineup, and he's been a solid 200-foot player at the NHL level, even though you need to shelter him a little bit. And he was good in the playoffs last year, too. Alex Romanov, even though he's been sheltered as well, he's been their best puck mover by a mile. No one else in that blue line is a decent puck mover, so if you don't have him, even on your sheltered third pair and PP2... I don't know what you're doing here. I mean, th this team already got rid of Victor Mete for, I don't, I don't think there are any logical reasons behind that. I think he worked on a pairing with Weber. He worked when sheltered. He's a very good puck mover, but they seem to want their big, strong physical defensemen instead of guys who can do stuff with the puck on their sticks. So interestingly, and, and you brought up Julian, and I, I think this is worth noting because we, 
you know, most of the Lee fans, I would, I would think listening to this right now, ourselves included, saw Claude Julien with the Bruins, um, especially towards the end of his time there. Their numbers of five on five were always really good. And so on one hand, yes, I, I think that's a testament to Julian's coaching and, and the style that he implements. But something about it kind of games the system because it's not like he left Boston and they went like downhill. They actually were really good and they went to the Stanley Cup final. So, you know, to, I, I, I recognize that Claude Julien does a good job of tilting the ice. I think to some degree it actually can hurt the team at times. In that they're too defensively oriented and they're not looking to create enough, I guess, quality chances offensively? Yeah, they're just he's, he sucks out the creativity and the offense out of the team a, a little bit too much. And I think they're just throwing pucks on net and, and like I said, gaming the system a little bit. Have you seen their heat map at, at the team level at 5-on-5? Five five? It's all red from the blue line. All their shots come from the blue line. Very few come from the slot. Toronto's, it's the exact opposite. All of Toronto's shots come from the slot. They try to never shoot from the blue line. So anecdotally, as a quick aside, I was I was thinking about this this week uh, for no reason whatsoever. I can't really remember Nylander shooting much from distance this year. And I'm not saying that I want him to, but there were times where he would kind of come down off the rush and just rip on, rip on by the goalie. And I don't really remember him doing that much this year. On the power play, his shot rate is way down, which I'm wondering if when he's playing that net front role, he sees himself as more of a passer. And he's supposed to open up, go into the right corner below the goal line. When we see Mitch Marner inevitably on the left flank, which is where I think he's going to ultimately end up. I know that they're trying this weird, okay, now we're going with two power play units instead of just the top-loaded power play unit. Should we Should we use this as an opportunity to talk about the Leafs' power play? Because it's definitely something we, that matters in this series. We can, but before we do, I want to close the loop here on Julian Ducharme and the Leafs, too, in the playoffs. So I want to note, and and while I do think Julian kind of games that system, I think they would have had probably a better chance with Julian as coach because he coaches that exact style that has given Leaf fits, right? Which is we're going to just low event hockey, grind it down. The Leafs have to stay patient and stick with the game, bore you essentially. And, and we've seen the Leafs, and this happened against Columbus, they get sloppy. At t- if, if the game gets boring, eventually they get antsy and they get sloppy and they give something up th- that they shouldn't have. Because, you know, it's uh, it can eat at you a little bit, right, when you're essentially getting rope-a-doped. Well, I'm thinking of a Nylander or a Marner. If you're used to creating offense off the rush and making creative plays in transition and you can't make those plays and now you're forced to dump it in and it really affects your game... I think this is part of the reason the Leafs wanted a Felino type. Uh, I'm trying to think who else is just excellent I mean, off even the cycle, Thornton but is guys who don't need rush chances you, to be if... effective. Yeah, Thornton. It's funny that the trouble is once you get Thornton into the offensive zone, he's awesome. It's just you're a bit concerned about actually getting there. But you know what's fascinating about Thornton is that his numbers alongside Matthews Marner, even when he got a few stints there late yeah. in the season, have always been awesome. And that was something I didn't expect. I assumed that my eye test was telling me that Thornton was really faltering towards the end, the back half of the season. That he started off strong, and then he sucked, and then he started playing well again. But if you look at some of the actual 5-on-5 five five play driving numbers, they show that he was always kind of beat, playing in the offensive zone more than he was in the defensive zone, which is what you want. And now, I noted this, I wrote about this this week, because I was very curious. We had talked so much about Deneau, and I was wondering, okay, how did Matthews actually do against... Dino because Matthews had 14 points in 10 games this year against Montreal. I mean, he's he he totally had his way with them, right? Matthews head to head on the ice against Dino was outshot attempted by 15. Doesn't shock me. And he outscored Dino by one, three to two. And that wouldn't shock me if we have very similar numbers by the end of this series. So that made me think, and I actually went back and I looked at all three goals that that Matthews was on for against Dino. And one was that ridiculous, like, bat the puck down sick goal that he scored a few weeks ago off, like, the far post and in. He has incredible hand-eye. It reminds me of Tavares, where if you just have incredible yeah. puck skills, you can bat pucks out of the air. But the other two, Zach Hyman was on 
and Zach Hyman made plays, whether on a four check or a pick down low, something that created space for Matthews. And I was watching it and I went, okay, you know what? That last week we were talking and I was, and I was saying how I would put Hyman on the third line to spread out the offense because it's, it's the Habs and, and they're a deep team. But I was watching after, and I was looking at those numbers against Deneau, and, and I just thought to myself, I, I totally get why he's putting Hyman here. I think I would do the same now that I've I've looked at it and thought about it a little further. It's for a bit of extra ice tilt. Yeah, right? Like, you know, if if Matthews is getting hedged off by Deneau, it's a series. If, if Matthews is able, you know, and, and I say Matthews, but I really mean that whole line, Marner and, and Hyman. Matthews Marner is where the offense is mostly coming from. Yeah, if their power play is terrible, I have no hope in their power play right now. Okay, we'll get and, to that section because I think there's a chance for it, but I'm, I'm not a big fan of what they appear to be going into game one with. But I'm not sure if that's what actually what they're doing because maybe it's all a red herring because you're trying to pull the wool over your opponent's eyes. I don't know. We'll talk about that shortly. I mean, there's three elite players and two very, very good players on it. So there's there's always a chance that it you know starts clicking again. But all in all to say is if your power play stinks, which it does right now, and there's a chance, sure, it fixes itself, but right now it stinks. In their last 20 games, I believe they're 27th in the NHL in goals 4 per 60 on the power play. Their net power play percentage is 2% since April 1. If you go back to the whole season, it looks better because they were awesome to start the year. But well, even, even some of the predictive numbers, though, the scoring chances, the expected goals look better better than you would think so is some of this just bad puck luck some of it is there were some power plays especially against vancouver when they lost those games where one there was the one game where uh where demko just blacked out and made a million saves on it and there was another game where holpe blacked out so you know they they have had chances but again besides the point all that says your power play stinks right now and if your top line is getting hedged off by an elite shutdown line you're like you know I don't want to say they're in trouble because you still have another line with John Tavares and, and you have some, some players, but that series is a problem all of a sudden. And this is my point when I'm talking about their 70% expected goals, just because Tatar individually, Dano individually, Gallagher individually, you don't think that they're anything too special, but the combination of those three players has been such an effective line at the NHL level over the last couple of years. They're greater than the sum of their parts. The sum of their parts is arguably the best line in hockey. And I know that that's uh, analytics. People will, will be very happy about it. People in the actual sport will say, are you crazy? You think that line is better than the Bruins top line? And that's the thing. It's because of Marsha and Pasternak's scoring ability. I think that's where I'd actually have them higher. McKinnon's scoring ability and Rantanen's scoring ability. I think I'd actually have them higher. Ian, I will fight you. If you say that that line is better than the Bruins line, I'll fight you. <laughs> well, here's the thing. If they go head to head and the Montreal line comes out on top in scoring chances and goals, then I think there's a half-decent chance it could be true. I don't think they would because I don't think Pasternak needs much to score, and I think any three of those guys on the Habs, maybe not Tatar, but the other two for sure, need they need golden chances, generally speaking, to score. Marchand and Pasternak don't need much. Yeah, Philip Deneau famously didn't have a lot of goals. He's gone through a long, long stretches without goals. I think I don't think he scored the first twenty games or so into the season. It was outrageous. But he's so good defensively that his team has the puck more than you. Yeah. So if you're the Leafs, I I totally get and I now back him. You know, Keith sitting there going, you know what? I'm not even screwing around. You know, let's match up. Let's go toe to toe. They think they have a six shutdown line. You know, and this is this is where I get back to. We talk about how good the Leafs are, and I totally get that this hat. I I think the Habs have one of the best shutdown lines in the league. I don't want to take anything away from them, but Austin Matthews is the best goal scorer in the NHL. Period. End of story. Full stop. There's no nothing else that needs to be added to that. I just ran the numbers. Just ran the numbers. Uh, yeah, you're right. And he's in one this year. And Mitch Marner, he's in one this year. And Zach Hyman, he was in one this year before he got hurt. The Leafs as a team have been. I just, I don't accept it. I don't care. Throw it at the Habs, whatever they throw at the Leafs. I we I mentioned this before the podcast. There's really two ways the Leafs lose this series. One, their own goalie shoot them, shoot them. And, you know, I will not take any argument that Carey Price or Jake Allen blackout. I, I don't care. 
the Leafs have enough firepower. Carey Price blacked out last year in the bubble. Is there a chance he does it again this year? Pittsburgh mailed it in. I won't even get into that series. But the the Leafs have enough. They can fight through that. They can fight through hot goaltending on the Habs. They really can. They have more than enough firepower. Yeah, they did. They did a great job of uh, it last year. Well, I'm being sarcastic. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. I think there's a number of reasons that go that go into that, and I think part of that was sort of that sloppiness and you know a team boring the game down and the Leafs getting antsy and the Leafs pushing um you know instead of just staying with the game and we've talked before about some of the stuff Keith says after the game but one thing that's always stood out to me and this early on when he first took over he talked a lot about the immaturity on the team it was the exact word he used immaturity and to me that always meant how undisciplined they were within the team system especially when things didn't go their way a big thing i noticed was the f3 just not covering for a pinching defenseman very simple hockey things that well-structured teams do without thinking about it yeah and honestly even getting ready for these playoffs i went back and was and was reading uh some of the stuff from their old playoff runs and and you know regardless of what you think of him but there were a few games where even babcock was noting um you know, he'd, he'd say, we came out and we played well, and it was like they scored one goal and the whole bench deflated, and we were terrible, right? Because then the story was coming out that the Leafs weren't ready for the game, and what he was trying to say was, no, I think we were ready, and then something went wrong, and we just didn't handle it well. And I think that that continued through to, to the Columbus series, and I think that that was one of the big reasons that they wanted to add so many vets to the team ever since then to just say okay we need to just roll with these punches when jason spezza is the guy who's starting the fight to give you the fire you need to come back in a game it's not good enough it's not good enough so now when i i look and that's why i said i don't care what the habs do the only way the leafs the only way is leafs lose the series are if jack campbell and then frederick anderson are both terrible you can't outplay you can find a way to solve good goaltending on the other side but if your goaltending is straight up terrible, you can't outplay that. I get that. A team with the higher save percentage tends to win. That's how hockey works. It's a game yeah. of puck luck and, and who had the hot goalie. And even if the Leafs have the second best goalie in the series, I think there's still a path for them to win it, you know, without too much hassle. But if their goal, if Jack Campbell and then Frederick Anderson, because you know, you know Freddie's going to play if Jack Campbell struggles. I think he's going to play even if Jack Campbell plays well because there's a back-to-back in games three and four. I think Anderson gets one of those starts. Yeah, so, you know, if they suck, then, yeah, the Leafs have a problem. Other than that, it's straight up if they get outworked. Like, that's it. If the Habs outwork them and they're able to pin the puck for long stretches in the Leafs' zone because they've shown that they can be that dominant possession team and that's what the Gallagher line's so good at yeah that's what I'm worried about is we were talking about that matchup and I think if the Gallagher line wins their matchup against the Matthews Marner line then oh boy we've got a series because I think the Habs have better scoring depth than the Leafs even though I like the Leafs second line I don't love the Leafs third line offensively and as much as I like Jason Spezza playing alongside Wayne Simmons I'm not sure is going to get the most out of him offensively I'm not sure if he's going to be in the offensive zone enough to take advantage of his talents so one thing that's that's stuck with me for for years now, and I, I've always tried to bring this up whenever, uh, you know, I'm around coaches or whatever the case is. But one time I was I asked was a veteran OHL person, we'll call him, and I just said, you know, how do you evaluate players? I mean, how do you really know who's better? And and he said the simplest thing, and it's and it's stuck with me to this day. And he just said, and he had a puck. I don't know why. And he said, if I throw this puck in the corner, who's going to get the puck? That player is better. Brendan Gallagher. That's that's why his five on five value is so elite. He's coming out with that puck. But now, but now when I watch Austin Matthews, because there were times early on in his career, his hits per minute and his hit his hits per game. And that's, you know, I'm not saying that as like he's hitting more now, so he's better at hockey. But what I am saying is his willingness to use his body now to retrieve the puck is signi- it's a significant difference than when he entered the league where he was constantly trying to pickpocket guys. And honestly, if 
you've been watching these playoffs. You can't go into the playoffs and try to pickpocket guys. You have to use your, you have to get dirty. I want to see Austin Matthews against Philip Deneau hard in a puck battle where Matthews is going in with some speed. Does he have the is he ready to throw his 220 pounds of weight around because he has the size he advantage in that matchup in a tight battle along the boards? And now I watch him more than ever, and I, I pulled this quote out for a notebook a few weeks ago because he acknowledged it. He said, you know, back in the Columbus series, I started to use my body more, and I've tried to carry that over. I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, I'm trying to carry that over now into this season. He totally has. That was why I referenced the the hits going up. You can and, see it on Sport Logic too. Puck battles like entered, puck battles won. He's among the leaders in the league, whereas if a year or two ago, that was certainly not the case. Yeah, and so now I kind of watch and go, this is the leader of this team. And I, I totally think he's, he can, he can set a tone physically and it, it's not, you don't have to do it with a big hit. Like you don't, people confuse that at times. It's like, Oh, how do I set a tone? Like, I have to kill somebody. Like, I have to just absolutely level somebody in order for a big hit. You know, the way Ovechkin just labeled Krejci to start the playoffs, which was awesome, but it doesn't have to be that. It could just literally be a big battle. You know, he, a 50-50 puck. Yeah. Can you come out of a corner with a puck yeah. that you have no business getting? Zach Hyman gets me fired up on the couch some nights by just going crazy into the corner and winning a battle. Yeah. And now I'm kind of watching the Leafs and I think they've matured. You know, the players are older. They're all, you know, they, they've kind of filled in. Mitch Marner is definitely bigger than when he first entered the league. He's taller right? for sure. And uh, I think he's bigger too. I mean, he's, he looks thicker. And, you know, Nylander for sure. Nylander, his draft year is 169, and then I think a year after, he gained 20 pounds of muscle. Yeah, he definitely has. Sometimes you watch him, and he's one-handed winning battles and whatnot. He's totally capable. He should throw his weight around more because he has some muscle in those thighs and that, uh, we should call it, lower half as a hockey player. That yeah. There's a reason he's so strong on the puck on the cycle. It's because he has strong legs. Yeah. So now we watch, and I just go, honestly, there's no excuse. You can't get outworked by the Habs, and... Everything else across the board is pretty much on the table. We talked about Ducharme. I, I'm not convinced this guy's a good coach at all. I, I'm trying to back up th that statement with some evidence. I just go, well, since Julian was fired, the Habs have been way worse. And let's look at some lineup decisions. They're playing Eric Stahl, and they're not playing Cole Caulfield or Jesperi Kotkaniemi. Is that the way of maximizing your team's chances of winning? I, I think Koken Yemi's, uh, I think that's a borderline fireable offense. And I think we're going to see him in the, I, I would be floored if we don't see Koken Yemi in this series. Or Cole Caulfield, because they're both very good players. Yeah, well, Caulfield I get, just in the sense that he has not been good at 5-on-5. Five five. I mean, what what are what's his shot share? Is it, at one point I was looking it's at It's below 50, it's below 50. I thought it was, it was like around 35 his first few games. It's come up. It's come way up. It's around that 48-49 range last I checked. So it's good that he's he's climbing up. And he's explosive, but honestly, you know, if it was a three-on-three -three tournament, Caulfield is probably line one. Yeah, his, a lot of his goals come at three-on-three -three where he has lots of time and space. But on the power play is where I think he could be an X factor, which should be a good transition to the yeah. least power play. But let me quickly touch on the Habs power play. Much like their five-on-five -five play, the Habs shots come from – very far away because their best players on the ice are both defensemen in Shea Weber and Jeff Petrie. Shea Weber, you can look at this statistically in terms of his ability to beat a goaltender from distance is unlike very few players in the NHL. He's right up there on lists with Stamkos, Lane, Pasternak. If you try to measure this statistically, he shoots the puck in the net from far away. It's hard to do, but when you have a hard shot like Weber, it has value. The hard part is that all those shots come from the blue line close to the left boards on the power play. He's not in the Ovechkin spot. He backs up a lot, and that gives the goalie an extra, I don't know if it's a half second, a quarter second, but it gives them that extra bit of time to make the save. Je Nick Suzuki runs it from the right wall. You have the two defensemen up top. If you have Cole Caulfield in the Ovechkin spot, does that drastically change things? Because that's an X factor for me, where that shot threat on the left side, and you have Nick Suzuki as a bit of a shot threat on the right side, even though he's more of a passer. I think that gives you a lot more balance. So are you going to take out Toffoli then? Because Toffoli leads their team in power play goals. Maybe you take out Perry? Maybe, or you, you try to shift Suzuki to the middle of the ice and you keep Toffoli on the side and you keep Caulfield on the side kind of thing. 
You have to take one of the defensemen off the top unit, I think, because I think you need to get more shots from closer to the net. Even teams who have great defensemen who have run three forward, two defensemen power play units, we've seen over the years, Tyler Dello used to always pull up these graphs, and the, the trend still remains true. The teams that are running four forward, one power play units are always more successful than three forwards, two defensemen, even when those two defensemen are elite players, like a Ryan Ellis and a Roman Yossi in Nashville. And I think the reason for that is... Just the nature of the defense position is to retreat back to the blue line. Whereas when you're on the power play, you have two minutes to score a goal. And if you put four forwards on the ice, they're thinking towards the net. Whereas defensemen tend to think back towards the blue line. And I just think having an extra forward on the ice for Montreal in Cole Caulfield, who's an elite shooter, I think that gives you way more threats to score a goal, even though they like to go with their blue line approach, which I'm not sure how efficient that is. It's hilarious how things change because I remember... I guess it was what 2007 or 2006, 2006, when uh, when Daniel Alfredson got roasted by Pominville for the overtime series winner. Do you remember that? Where Pominville walked Alfredson. And uh, and I remember a lot of the talk back then was you know it's because they had a forward on the point on the power play in overtime, and and now it's without question. And if you look at the Habs. Their highest volume shooters on the power play are Weber and then Toffoli, which it should be Toffoli because, again, he leads their team in power play goals, and then Petrie. And it just doesn't make sense. Yep. That's not yep. – they they live for shooting up top. Weber does miss the net quite a bit. He has a bomb when it connects, and no one's going to argue that, but it's not particularly efficient. It's like a team built on deep twos in the NBA. I'm trying to think. Maybe a team who runs the ball in every single down in football. It, it's, it's cool to be good at it, but it's not efficient. You know what it's like? It's like a team that's not good at three-point shooting, shooting a lot of threes. Yeah, or I'm thinking deep two-pointers, like being really far yeah. away from the, the where you're trying to score from. And it's easier to score when you're closer. Yeah, it's just it's not an efficient shot to be your go-to play. So... Yeah, I'm kind of watching them, and, and, you know, they're big guys, and they usually take their time to load up and, and whatnot, and I'm kind of, you know, looking at the Leafs forwards that play PK, and they're generally a fast, hound-the-puck kind of group, and I just just take away their time and space. It should not be hard for a guy, you know, Ilya Mikheyev, Alex Kerfoot, to close on them. Challenge them. Don't let them chill back there and tee off bombs first of all your body's not going to like that because a few are going to hit you and in a playoff series it's going to wear and tear and uh and second of all they just they don't have to do that they, they have the speed where they can they can get out there and not compromise the rest of the unit just by getting out there and challenging them and i, th- I think that's what we'll see they'll just have to be ready for the habs to maybe actually think about it a little bit and put the puck down low and make a play all right let's transition to the Leafs power play now they have two units as of right now with Joe Thornton in the bumper roll, which is going to give me an aneurysm at this point because I, we're, they're still doing it. And it, it if pointless. I'm an opposing coach and I see Joe Thornton in the bumper roll, I'm telling my penalty killers, ignore him and pressure the guys along the wall, take away time and space from those guys. Now they're not going to be able to make the plays they want to make. And we've made our life a hell of a lot easier as a PK unit. So uh, they need to get Joe Thornton out of that bumper roll. That's not going to work. That is not the solution to their problems. Assuming they go back to a top-loaded PP1 look, which I think is eventually how you end up arriving at your solution here to, to the, the your problems, I'd imagine Sandine is going to get a look as the quarterback from the blue line. I'd imagine you have Marner on the left wall, Matthews on the right wall, you finally flip them, Tavares in the middle of the ice as the bumper, and then William Nylander is the quote-unquote net front because he's not really a net front. He stands to the left of the net. And I like that because it would give you opportunities to switch Marner and Nylander. That, to me, sounds like something that can have success in the playoffs. And if they do that, I think they're going to maximize their chances. In terms of what they're actually going to do in Game 1, what are your overall thoughts? Just because I don't love it. Yeah, I think I think my biggest worry is, and, and the Leafs just finished an, an 0-9 rip against the Habs on the power play in a week. They really struggled to gain the zone. And and they continue to turn to Marner. And it sucks because, honestly, it's, it's frustrating for, for me in the sense that it, it seems like we're dogging Marner. 
And Marner's unreal, so I want to get that. He had a 102-point season with strong uh, defensive impacts at 5-on-5. Five five. He's obviously a very good hockey player. We're not saying Mitch Marner sucks. He's so good, so it sucks to say, but honestly, he's, he's not good at gaining the zone on the power play. He's not as good as you'd think he would be. He, you would think you'd sit there and go, this guy has all the tools, he has the vision, he's got the edge work, and he sees the ice well, and he actively wants to get teammates involved. I mean, at the end of the you look at most of the things and you go, yeah, I think he should be able to be really good at this but he's just not he's just not i'm sorry he's not do you think they should give more of those duties to william nylander yeah it's a no-brainer it's a literal no-brainer don't ask me questions you already know the answer to ian of course i'm just should. trying to i'm trying to tee up I'm trying to throw the alley-oop pass to myself here basically off the backboard i think nylander is a bit more of an explosive skater well not i think he is a more explosive skater than marner and i i think his speed just when he winds up he's it's a little bit more intimidating when he's when he's coming at you in full in full speed because he'll just he'll just blow right by you. Marner's not really blowing by guys, right? And so I think that speed makes a big difference. He does it more with his deception. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas so I think Mar- like Nylander just comes in, he's just a hot hot knife through butter, right? He just slices right in with speed. But Marner relies a lot on shiftiness, craftiness, head fakes, and making that pass that no one on the ice expects. But you can coach against that, and it's it's easier to defend. And I just I think teams have them totally figured out right now. This is where Rasmus Sandin can come in and help them on entry plays because in his few games that he did get with the Leafs, he took it himself a couple times because other teams have pre-scouted the Leafs and go they drop pass it every single time. Sandin giving them that carry option I think is something that will help them gain the zone a bit more often. One of my only actual worries about about them in the playoffs right now, and. And like I said, I'm basically taking no excuses. They have to win. And I think that there's an urgency to win, which is good. Um, not to say that there wasn't before, but I, I think they, you know, they didn't take the chances for what they had previously. But I, I think this year there's a little bit more of, you know, day one wasn't let's get to the playoffs. Day, day one was how are we building to go far in the playoffs this year? And that's a different mentality we got to come out of this Canadian division. Yeah, I think that's a different mentality, and I think that's the right mentality. And you have to build to get there, and they have built to get there now. But one of my only actual worries is that third pairing of Sandine Dermott. It's really inexperienced. Well, when is Bogosian coming in? Because he's got to come in, I, I think, at some point in the series. He's practicing with the team, and, and it sounds like he's been you know, alternating the jerseys uh, of good to go or not kind of thing. We're assuming that he takes Dermot's spot, right, and not Sandine's. If Sandine is good on the power play, then he has to stay because the Leafs' power play stinks right yeah. now. But if Sandine isn't the answer on the power play, then that's a reason for you to say, well, if Dermot's the better player at 5-on-5 five five and, you know, someone we can throw on the PK. Or if he's just bad, right? He's still a rookie in the playoffs. And there's a chance that happens. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to count that out and just say, yeah, for sure Dermot's out because – if you were asked me today, who would you expect to be more steady in the playoffs? I would say Dermot. Interesting. At five and five, at least. Yeah, especially alongside Bogosian. If you go, okay, well, we have a larger sample on that crushing third pair of minutes. Yeah, you just want a steady third pairing, and, and you're gonna borderline forego the power play, but you're gonna feel good about the third pairing at five on five. It would be Dermot. I'm just thinking upside in terms of uh, championship. Woody, who is the guy that? gives you something that you don't currently have and with sandy and it's the idea that your power play can start clicking again and an offensive element on your third pair which dermot doesn't give you as good as he is in transition defense at tightening up in the neutral zone and as good as he is at going back on loose pucks and shaking the first four checker and starting the breakout he provides almost no value on offense whereas sandine provides big time value on offense with his passing ability so that, that's where I could see the deciding factor being. If I'm deciding between Dermott and Sandine at 5-on-5, five five, I think you can even make a case for Sandine just because of his offensive upside. Yeah, and just to close here on the power play, just to loop back there for a sec, is honestly, if it's really as simple as if you're just actually watching the other teams play in the playoffs. They all have multiple shooters up top, and the Leafs have one. Riley is not a credible shot threat, and we know Mitch Marner isn't. Well, Sandine isn't either, for being honest. He's got a nice wrister through traffic for for tips, but yeah, I think he has a nice little snapper to him. But yeah, absolutely, teams would challenge him to make them pay. He's not Victor Hedman. He's not John Carlson. He's not Brent Burns in his prime. Even Chris Letang, you know, like 
like these guys can can shoot the puck. I heard Bourne bring this up the other day about how other than Backstrom, there aren't too many successful power play units, let's say over a four or five year range where you had one shooter and one passer. Most successful power play units have shooters on both sides of the ice because that's what makes you unstoppable. You have a Marsha on one side, a Pasternak on the other, a Kucherov on one side, a Stamkos on the other, a McKinnon on one side, a Rantanen on the other, um, a McDavid on one side, a Drysaddle on the other. Both guys can burn you. The trouble with the Leafs is that the way that Mitch Marner burns you isn't with a shot. So can I, can I argue that him delivering a backdoor pass when he gets the exact same room that a shooter otherwise would from the same spot can that be an attribute that leads to an elite power play unit? Because we've seen Marner run power play units that have been among the most successful in NHL history in years past. So why isn't his elite passing ability something that can work on one of the best power plays in the league? It could be, but he just doesn't have the space. So yeah, sure, if he had the space in that hypothetical world, it definitely could work, but he's not getting that space. And even Washington, we can say, okay, Backstrom is really a pass-first guy, and, and nobody would question that. But John Carlson has a good shot. Like, last four years, 15 and 82, 13 and 80, 15 and 69, and 10 and 52 nice. goals, right? I mean, that guy, he can shoot the puck. He And he has a credible one-timer, and teams will absolutely respect that. Also, John Carlson's sick. I mean, the last... <laughs> He's sick offensively. Yeah, offensively. Uh, five on five, I have some concerns. Yeah, same same for me. But yeah, like he's he's the full package on offense. But you you watch these teams, you know, Kale McCarr, whatever. They have shooters. They have multiple shooters. They have multiple shot threats. The Leafs have one shot threat right now. Tavares in the bumper, not a shot threat. He's only a shot threat. If, but th- then you can overload, right? Because he's only a shot threat at, on the one-timer side. Yep. To the point where you have to actually cheat to him. So that means he's only a one-timer threat if Matthews has the puck. And you could just overload both of them and say, yeah, okay, if they drop it to Riley, we don't care. Sandine over Riley, if we could quickly get into this. What are the strengths and weaknesses of each? If you were to make the case for Riley, if you're on Team Riley, and if you make the case for Sandine, I basically already made it. So let's let's try to make the case for Riley here. If Sandine is just turning pucks over, he's not passing the puck to Austin Matthews, let's say. If Sandine's going for his wrist shot too often, and he's looking off the best shooter on the team. Yeah, take a yeah. seat. Take a so seat. So is that an element? But then again, I feel like we have similar concerns with Riley. So my my biggest win for Riley would be and he hasn't really done it this year and I feel as if it is systemic I do not think it is a Riley decision but they're basically just saying you're going to skate the puck to center and you're going to drop the puck to to Marner and that's it but and this was and you might recall last year when you and I were arguing about whether to start Barry or Riley on the power play good times good times and my biggest thing with Riley is Riley is actually good on the power play breakout as, and not as a guy that you would drop the puck to. But if you give Riley free reign to make the decision, if you, if you actually just look at him and say, okay, if they're going to cheat to Marner, then wheel, just go. Break through the defense, take the zone entry yourself. Yeah. He is explosive enough and he's good enough with the puck to do that himself. And honestly, think about it. How many times has that happened this year? Not How, enough. It feels almost like never. And honest, it's annoying me, first and foremost. But second, I kind of just sit there and go, <laughs> there's so many things I look at on their power play and just say, I hope to God you guys were just playing with us and you're going to wake up come playoff time. And Riley skating the puck in, he is really, really good at it. It's probably one of the best things that he brings to the table yeah of his attributes as a player his ability to transition the puck himself and skate it from d zone to o zone is one of the things he does better than almost any nhl player yeah and he's not doing it this year as, as on the power play in particular and i'm sorry i'm just i'm not watching and going i think riley just became like out to lunch and totally forgot how to do this i'm watching going i think he's just following orders here is that more a problem with the structure, the systems, the Manny Malhotra side of things? Yes, a hundred percent. I'm looking at the, I'm just looking at the units right now on daily faceoff, and just seeing Joe Th- Thornton as the bumper on that unit is, 
not making me a happy person. They also have Zach Hyman as the net front and Wayne Simmons as the net front, which is something they did earlier in the year. They had Simmons on the Matthews unit, and I want to say they had Hyman on the other unit. And they really focused on getting the puck down low more often, trying to create deflections, rebounds. I'm wondering if that's an element they try to bring back in this series because clearly they think the two-unit approach can work. I remain skeptical, but if it is going to work, I think you need those guys in front of the net setting good screens, getting lots of deflections, getting to rebounds. I mean, this is things I'd say about any successful power play unit on any team, but if that's the way the Leafs want to run this with a bit more size in front as opposed to William Nylander as the skill option, you need to make sure you're winning those battles. And against uh, Shea Weber, I'm not sure if you will be. No, and the the thing I'll give Simmons, and it's not really even giving it to him, just acknowledging, is Simmons, I mean, Simmons has been an elite net front guy for a long time. He's basically a specialist at this point in his career. That's the area of the ice where you expect him to make a difference. Everywhere else, you're a little bit concerned. Oh, no, Wayne Simmons has the puck in the neutral zone in a three-on-three situation. Is he going to make the right play? Maybe not, but... He's going to the net, and there's a shot from the point coming. You're thinking, okay, this is a good situation for Wayne Simmons. Yeah, and so I get that Weber is, you know, Weber is a mountain of a human. <laughs> That's not lost on me. What did what did Babcock call him? Didn't he call him Man Mountain? Yeah, something along those lines, right? That's where I was kind of channeling that from. So that's not lost on me. And so he is in the upper echelon of, of physicality you have to deal with in front of your net. But in saying that, you know, Simmons has been around long enough. I'm. It would be surprising to me if he couldn't figure out a way to be effective in, in front of the net. But the Leafs have to do a better job of getting good shots through. And, and they just have one guy, like I said, that can do it. And, you know, until they start gaining the zone better and more consistently, and until they start, you know, giving teams two tangible shot threats to deal with, this is, this is the stuff we're going to see from their power play. And... Really, the hope then is, uh, and again, I wrote the wrote this this week is the Habs tied for the league lead in shorthanded goals. You could you could credibly argue to me right now that if the Leafs got the power play, my biggest worry would be the Habs actually scoring. See, the Leafs are also among the league leaders in shorthanded chances. Uh, Mikheyev and Marner yeah. both somehow have zero goals on the PK. Which no, is not somehow. We know. We know why. We know we know why Mikhaev's shots aren't going yeah. in. We know. But Mitch Marner also has a lot of chances on the PK, and he hasn't scored a goal yet. Yeah, so, you know, really at the end of the day, I'm okay, at least against the Habs, at anyone in this division, really, if the Leafs just sit there and have to beat them at 5-on-5, five because five, the Habs don't have a good power play either. And I'm okay with that overall, you know, premise and matchup. But what I absolutely do not want to see use the worst part other than getting scored against is the power play is just so so bad that it actually just sucks the energy out of the Leafs that they get a power play they think oh this is our chance to actually do something and they don't even gain the zone yeah and then their next shift at five on five they're just the confidence is gone yeah I can yeah see and the thing. momentum is just swung you know zero to 100 for montreal and they're all fired up they have a big gallagher shift afterwards where he's getting into someone's face and yeah it, it's already bothering me you just outlining what would happen because that's exactly what would happen and and you could see I'm trying to picture, if I'm a Habs fan, how does this happen? How does my team get the win? And it's like, well, Toronto's power play implodes. Manny Malhotra's run out of Toronto. Deneau, Hedges, Matthews. Cole Caulfield comes in and scores a couple goals in the power play. Yeah, Deneau wins the matchup against Matthews. You realize that Toronto's third line can't score because Riley Nash, as good as he is defensively, provides no value on offense. Yeah, Leafs goaltending goes to shit. And, you know, we don't really think, but we everyone thinks about the goal scoring with the Leafs. The Leafs were a top 10 team in 5-on-5 in five five save percentage this year, and including Frederick Anderson. And that's largely because of their, de- their defensive systems. If you look at some of the closer numbers, their ability to limit shot quality is among the best in the league. Only Dallas and I want to say Colorado did a better job of making a good environment for the goaltender, limiting east-west passes, odd man rushes, even though TJ Brody would disagree. But they did a good job at making life easy on their goalie. This isn't this isn't uh, you know your your child's Maple Leafs in the sense that they just outscored their problems this year, which they had been doing for a number of years. 
They were top five in chances for and chances against. They were a balanced team this year. Yeah, they were balanced across the board and legit. That's why we look and, and say, okay, across the board, the Leafs are, they have an advantage on the Habs pretty much any which way you slice it. So I could take the power play not scoring. I can't take it being so brutal that it zaps the energy out of the room. That's a problem. The goaltending has to hold. Otherwise, you're really you're really looking at a lot more what ifs on the hab side of things in order for for them to win. It's like what do the Leafs need to win? It's okay, they just need to play. They need to not beat themselves. Do everything you've been doing for the regular season is how the Leafs would win in the playoffs. Yeah. Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner play well. Uh, the Tavares line gets going. I think that's something we didn't discuss too much, but I think the Felino Tavares chemistry in the offensive zone starts to you start to see more of it off the cycle when teams are forced to dump the puck in a bit more often in the playoffs. That's a line I could see having a big impact. I think that also allows Nylander to hang out in the top of the top of the circle, like high slot area, and be more of a trigger man. He'll have more space in general. Yeah, or just come and scoop up loose pucks, and he has plenty of open ice to skate into. Yeah, and I don't know if I've ever really written about this. I mean, it's a very common thing that happens in the league for most people that don't know, is if the puck goes into the corner, the first forechecker, or even in the first defender, all your job is is take the body, right? So if you watch, puck gets dumped into the corner, the first D-man's usually just going in, and he's he's riding out the physical contact from the forechecker, and the defense partner comes in, or the center comes in and picks up the puck zach hyman's famously done this a lot for austin matthews in the past yeah it's not usually you know the player that goes to get the puck in the corner is the one that comes out of it that's not even his goal his goal is really just to take the body and then leave the puck for a teammate it's really only the you know incredible defensemen who go back into the corner and get the puck themselves and they're able to shake their way out of it and turn up ice that's how you're a sick defenseman in the league. Your typical NHL player isn't doing that. You're right. He's just kind of absorbing contact and waiting for his teammate to come in and make a play. And Felino can totally be that guy that absorbs that contact, and that's just going to open up for Nylander to just swing and get the puck, right? You know, whereas in previous years, and this is not just with Nylander, it's with everyone, pretty much everyone on the team. It's like, who's going to go Who's going to get the puck? Who's going to go take the body so I can get it, right? And, and now you kind of look, and, you know, Hyman on first line, Felino on the second line, a little bit more space, like you said, for Nylander to operate, whether they're going to dig the pucks out and feed him in the slot or they're going to take the body and Nylander just going to swing in and get it and go to work. And, you know, Tavares had a point per game against the Habs this year. He had 10, he had 10 and 10 and Nylander had seven and eight. And so even if Dino and Matthews hedge, I think the Leafs kind of look at it and go, okay, they could actually envision a world with Riley Nash where they go, we want Riley Nash to, to steal some shifts against the Suzuki to Foley line, which are the Habs two leading scorers that. up front, right? You'd like to get him out there more against Gallagher, but I got to think that Montreal's main goal in life is just stapling Deneau and Gallagher and Tatar to that Matthews Marner line. If honestly, I mean, if I was the Leafs too, I, and I've seen some people say that I would, I would chase away from the matchup, especially at, at home. But honestly, if I was Keefe, I would feel it out because I would kind of look at that as a challenge for Matthews. You can't hide your best players. If, honestly, you want to win a cup, you can't hide your best players. Your best players are going to have to outplay the opponent's best players. That's how hockey works. Right? Like We had Bruce Boudreau on a month ago, and we were talking about that, Humble that series against... Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about that Anaheim-Chicago series, right? And what did he say? He's like, game six and seven, Taves and Kane had... They were better than Getzlaff and Perry. What, what do you want me to do? Yeah, they had five or six points, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, Perry and Getzlaff had nothing, and they were like dash two, dash three. Like, you, you, know, you don't win games like that. There's nothing. There's no coaching. There's no X's and O's. There's no, I'm going to, you know, this player to swing different. And at the end of the day, are your best players your best players? So if I was the Leafs, I would look at it. And again, I they have the pieces to shift this around if things were going bad. But to start... I would definitely be looking, and I think that's why Hyman's there. I'd be like, yeah, we're going to match up head-to-head, and you better come out on top. This better, like, there's no discussion here. And you you might have, you know, a few more shots, a few more chances, but we're going to score more goals because we have Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner on the ice. Yeah, and then so then you look at the rest of the way, and you go, I mean, the wild card for the Habs is they want to put together that Perry, Eric Stahl, 
Josh Anderson as of right now. Right now, it's Josh Anderson. That line has not played. They've played nine minutes together this year. And Eric Stahl's been bad in all of his five-on-five minutes for Montreal. Eric Stahl's been terrible. We've said it for a month now. And it's just worth bringing up because we're going to see much more of him than we probably should. Yeah, he'll probably have a playoff blackout now that I've talked all this smack, but whatever. Yeah, he's, he's going to have a PDO of like 150 yeah, by the end of but, this. So we'll see. But the that line is the wild card, right? Because if they're actually good for the Habs, then the Leafs have to sit there and go, okay, now the Habs have the you know the elite shutdown line and Toffoli and Suzuki are legitimately dangerous. But that if that third line gives them nothing then they don't have enough to compete with the Leafs. But the Leafs are basically just dictating the matchup against the Suzuki to Foley line with Riley Nash and, and co shutting them down. And then Tavares is just running train, you know, between the Eric Stahl line and the Suzuki line in favorable situations. The Habs just don't have enough to keep up with that. You know what's funny is we haven't brought up the Leafs defense yet. And I just I find it interesting that we, oh, Jake Muzzin, TJ Brody, good defensively. I, Toronto, good defensive team. Sounds so weird to say out loud. I thought about Muzzin when we were talking about, you know, the physicality and, and whatnot in the playoffs. Because honestly, I think, this, I think this would get a lot more attention if they had actually won the series. But he absolutely destroyed Tory Krug a few years ago. <laughs> Oh, was he a Leaf when this happened? Yeah, yeah, he was a Leaf. It was the it was the year that they traded for him. He absolutely see, and you don't even remember. He absolutely ran him over. It's funny. I grade all these games; they all blend together in my head, and then I lose memories of Alex Kerfoot getting stapled by Jeff Carter, which you sent me before this started. Yeah, also destroyed him. And I I remember Tory Krug that summer. They were talking. They he was on a podcast, and they asked him about the hit, and he said. Like, like I forgot like the only guy on the Leafs that hit was on the ice it was, J- it was Jake Muzzin and he destroyed him like he got wrecked uh, his helmet went flying it was a whole thing um you know Muzzin Muzzin is a playoff guy through and through he he knows the limits of things that he can get away with he is physical he is trenches he is close the period he is close the game you know he has the booming shot which I think because it's so hard to create offense at times in the playoffs, just having a guy with a booming shot is sometimes just valuable because you're just going to hammer the puck to the net. Yeah, when nothing else is going well, you can't break down the other team off the cycle. You go, screw it, Jake Muslin, let one fly. Let's see. Yeah, and then and then we'll see with Brody and Riley because that's the kind of pairing where I could I I would sit there and and quite, like you know, are you guys ready to battle the the Gallagher's of the world? in the trenches well tj brody's just been so good defensively this year that it's opened up the room for morgan riley to go be his fourth forward self and be good offensively with toronto's best offensive players and in the playoffs will they be able to take advantage of those two-on-one opportunities or will tj brody do what he's done all season and just be stout defensively and allow morgan riley to take more chances so that that's that's gonna be a fascinating thing to keep an eye on otherwise like I don't have too much to add about the defense. I think Justin Hole struggled in the second half of the year, and I think he struggled last year in the playoffs primarily when Muzzin got hurt. So I'm not ready to say I'm concerned, but I'm definitely very, very interested to see how he looks in particular. He stands out to me as a guy that kind of needs to, he needs to elevate a little bit here. I think more so than the other three. For sure. So we'll get out of here. Can we quickly tell people what we're going to be doing during the playoffs? Because I'm excited. We're going to be uh, shifting things up a little bit because I think with the Leafs report cards especially, I've, I've done the same format for a couple years now that I find that myself even sometimes I'm going, okay, going through the motions here. It's another Tuesday night against blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yes, Kerfoot was three stars. Yes, he had his own entry. It's just yeah. we've seen it before. Riley had a hat trick, one star. <laughs> <laughs> Riley had five points in the game. Oh, but I didn't like the way he defended this one rush, so we're going to give him two stars. Uh, Travis Dermott shook one guy in the four-track, four stars. Yeah, no. there, there have been a lot of jokes. I've been, I've been, one of my favorites is from my buddy Nick. Uh, he's on my Chell team, and he says, unlike you, Ian, uh, you know, the rest of us all close our eyes when the puck is in the neutral zone, and then we open them again when the puck goes into the office. So thanks for filling us in on those details. I really appreciate it. <laughs> These are all good jokes. I appreciate them. But uh, what we're going to be doing is uh, instead of Leafs report cards, you're going to be putting out, uh, I'm not sure what we're going to call it, but it's coming out quickly after the game uh, within about 10, 15 minutes after the final buzzer. Yeah, game intense. Uh, so 
so regular readers will probably be familiar with them I did them last year in the playoffs as well and think they were fairly well received so you know we'll try to try to dig in on you know individual player performances yes but flow of the game coaching decisions key moments uh you know things that may or may not have have swung the the game a certain direction storylines whatever the case is we're going to try to dig in through it through game and 10 so 10 10 points about the game that kind of take you through everything that just happened or i'm sure there'll be a preamble of some sort and then we'll just get right into it and you know we started the podcast by noting this but again i just want to reiterate and super fired up for a playoff run like i'm you know i i think skill and timing and opportunities is is meeting for the leafs and i think these guys are i think this is the hungriest group we've seen the the, the most skilled yes but also the, the hungriest we've seen to to really to really do it this year and for the last few years it's been one round and out and it feels like we're trying to get ready for this playoff run where there's going to be lots of juicy content content coming out every week and then it's over before it even started i think this year everyone's getting the vibe that this could last a little bit longer hopefully and now that i've said that they're going to get swept so just <laughs> keep that in mind but you're going to have those quick things coming out shortly after the game I'm going to be doing my same kind of deep dives afterwards, but instead of formatting it in the way of Leafs report cards, we haven't decided what we're going to call it yet. It's going to be a post-game article, a post-game column. But instead of diving into 20 different Maple Leafs and telling you how well Alex Kerfoot played and how well the fourth-line left winger played, we're going to dive into a few specific performances that I think really mattered based on the game. And it'll, it'll depend. Some games, Riley Nash might be the guy that we're really focusing on a bit more than often. Other games, Matthews and Marner might have completely dominated their matchup, and we want to show why. So I'm going to have noteworthy performances. We're going to have some video room, diving into some interesting plays that weren't necessarily goals. Uh, and th that's always my favorite because everyone sees goals on the highlights, but sometimes it's the plays away from the puck and the plays 200 feet away from your own net that make a big difference going to be going through stat of the night things to keep an eye on moving forward but the biggest thing is that i'm going to be changing up the format of these leafs report cards and i know that pe regular readers will know that the way that i try to go about evaluating the game of hockey it isn't just a simple like okay one out of five this guy played good this guy played bad i like getting into the minutiae i like getting into tactical stuff in the playoffs line matching is going to matter a lot more so there's so much to dive into in this in this playoff series. I know we tried to get into some of it over the last hour, but over the next week or two, and hopefully longer this season, uh, I'm going to be diving into some stuff post-game that is similar to Leafs report cards, but we're going to be diving into some specifics. Uh, I think it's going to give me an opportunity to really show what I can do video-wise, number-wise, tactic-wise, to, to try to explain what's going on and why. This is our goal, to try to spruce up the... Uh, the postseason content for you. I'm really excited about it. I was talking to the, the host of our site, uh, Alec, earlier today, and me and him are just both so jacked up to, to get ready for this playoff series. I can't wait to get some good content out there. Yeah, I don't know if uh, if I've ever dropped an F-bomb on this podcast before, but let's fucking go. It's playoff time, man. I'm ready. I don't want to swear, but I did at the end of the <laughs> Bruce Boudreaux one, so <laughs> might as well yeah, do it. Yeah, you got wrecked on that. I thought we you ended the call. That. I thought it was over, and I just, after you, fucking A, buddy. Let's go. And then Bruce is like, oh, uh, still here, guys. And yeah. Yeah, I hang off this call. I don't want to talk to you guys anymore. One okay. of the better moments of my life. Yeah. <laughs> just face palm right away. But we're excited. We're going to have lots of content for you over the next couple of weeks. And another Maple Leafs Hot Stove podcast coming next week. I think the Leafs will have played at least two games by then, maybe three, depending on when we record. So talk to you after the Leafs blow Montreal out of the water the first couple games uh, looking forward to actual real meaningful playoff hockey we'll talk soon everyone go Leafs go Leafs go you've been listening to the Maple Leafs hot stove podcast for news opinion and analysis make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation